Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Today's episode was recorded in front of a live virtual audience. I moderated a conversation pegged to the fifth anniversary of the Paris Climate Agreement. Participants discussed ways in which countries' climate action plans can do more than just take on climate change, but also improve human health and spur economic development. We use the example of Chile's new climate action plan as an entry into this point of inquiry. The episode was produced in partnership with the Stockholm Environment Institute, SEI, and Andrea Lindblom of SEI co-moderated the event. Andrea Lindblom offers some introductory remarks before I lead a moderated discussion. The panelists include Marcelo Mena Carrasco, director of the Center for Climate Action at the Catholic University of Valparaiso and the former Environment Minister of Chile, Dr. Laura Gallardo-Klenner, who is a professor at the Center for Climate and Resilience Research at the University of Chile, Graham Watkins, who is chief of the Climate Division at the Inter-American Development Bank, and Chris Malley, who is a senior research fellow at the Stockholm Environment Institute. Through the course of this conversation, some of the speakers make reference to reports or studies, and I've put links to those in the show notes of this podcast episode. I think you'll appreciate this conversation. It was interesting and lively and fun, and a big thank you to SEI for partnering with the podcast for this live virtual taping. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome. Bienvenidos to this webinar on increasing climate ambition, improving human health, and spurring economic development in the face of a pandemic. My name is Andrea Lindblom, and I work for Stockholm Environment Institute, or SCI. Very pleased to host this event that's being recorded and will be turned into an episode of the Global <laughs> Dispatches podcast. Excited to have Global Dispatches podcast host Mark Goldberg moderate today's discussion featuring Laura Gallardo-Klena, University of Chile, former Chilean Environment Minister Marcelo Mena Carrasco, the chief of the IDB's climate change division, Graham Watkins, and SEI's very own Chris Malley on the panel. Thank you all for joining, and thank you for joining us online, and thank you to Ian and Venny for supporting us behind the scenes. This discussion comes just days before an international virtual summit to raise climate ambition, and just a few days after the UK government announced its aims to drastically reduce greenhouse gas emissions by the end of the decade. Encouraging news from a developed country, but we've also seen some updated national climate action plans or nationally determined contributions, NDCs, from developing nations, least developed countries like Rwanda, emerging economies like Colombia, whose updated NDC has been for public consultation but is expected to be finalized in the coming days. We see these commitments despite the fact that developing countries may often feel raising climate ambition comes at the expense of development. At SEI, we're all about achieving synergies between taking climate action and reaching development goals. Our researchers like Chris work with many developing countries large and small in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean, to build their capacities to model and embark on low carbon pathways that deliver benefits for the climate and the people. We'll hear more about that in just a minute, but before we start, I'd just like to walk you through the agenda, which is pretty straightforward. I'll hand over to Mark um, to set the scene and moderate our panel discussion. And then around 40 minutes from now, we'll take a few questions from you and the online audience. Um, the chat is already open and you can use the Q&A section on the right 
of your screen to post your questions. Veni will be publishing questions to the chat and we appreciate if you uh, state your name and affiliation and put a short and clear question. The final 10 minutes of this event are reserved for a quick lightning round. Uh, so that's one last question to each panelist from Mark Goldberg. And off we go. Thank you. Uh, welcome. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I am the editor of UN Dispatch and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. Today's conversation about increasing climate ambition, improving human health, and spurring economic development in the face of a pandemic is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. Now, as Andrea noted, our conversation today is well-timed. December 12th, 2020 is the five-year anniversary of the Paris Climate Agreement. And on that day, a number of governments, non-state actors, and other world leaders will convene virtually for a Climate Ambition Summit hosted by the United Nations, the United Kingdom, and France in partnership with Chile and Italy. Now, the idea behind the summit is to encourage governments around the world to submit what are known as Enhanced Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs. These enhanced NDCs are each country's individual plans to take on climate change within their own national contexts. NDCs are the core of the Paris Agreement, and when it was signed in 2015, there was an explicit expectation among the parties that in five years, each country would resubmit revised NDCs that were of increased ambition. Uh, that is, the NDCs that countries were to announce in 2020 would do more and be farther reaching than the NDCs of 2015. Uh, so that was the plan. Uh, then the pandemic hit. The international conference in which these enhanced plans were to be discussed among member states, that's been postponed by a year. Still, many countries have submitted enhanced NDCs. And today we're going to focus on one country that has done so, Chile. Chile's new NDC includes a plan for carbon neutrality by 2050 and, among other things, includes a 25% reduction in so-called black carbon by 2030. Black carbon is a major health hazard that is emitted from dirty burning furnaces in some areas of Chile. And in our conversation today, we are going to use Chile as a starting point for a broader conversation about ways countries can design policies to take on climate change while also spurring economic development and improving the health and welfare of their people. Uh, so to that end, we have an excellent panel, which I'm pleased to introduce right now. Uh, Marcelo, Mena, Marcelo Mena Carrasco is director of the Center for Climate Action at the Catholic University of Valparaiso and the former Minister of Environment of Chile. Uh, welcome, Marcelo. Adrian Mark. Doctor, thank you. Uh, Dr. Laura Gallardo Klenner is a professor at the Center for Climate and Resilience Research at the University of Chile. Uh, welcome, Laura. Thank you very much. Hi. Uh, Graham Watkins is Chief of the Climate Division at the Inter-American Development Bank. Welcome, Graham. Thank you very much, Mark. And Chris Malley oh. is a Senior Research Fellow with the Stockholm Environment Institute, SEI. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Mark. Nice to be here. Okay, so with that, uh, we've had a lot of introduction. Let's dive into the meat of this conversation. Laura, I wanted to start with you uh, to drill down a bit on this black carbon issue. Chile's new climate change commitment includes two targets that I mentioned. One, to reduce greenhouse gases in line with full decarbonization in 2050, and another to reduce black carbon. Uh, can you explain for us what makes black carbon such a problem in Chile, and how will Chileans benefit from reducing black carbon, even as the climate benefits as well? Well, uh, roughly one and a half million households in Chile use still still use uh, wood burning as a means for um, warming, heating houses, and 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 for uh, for cooking, uh, and that applies for the most part of the region where uh, Chileans live, between roughly 30 south and 40 south. 
uh, in latitude in the continental part of Chile. And uh, that uh, redounds or, or that has a, as a consequence on the one hand, uh, uh, very severe issues regarding air quality um, in terms of particles uh, in winter time, but also in other parts, uh, in other periods of the year. And uh, so we are talking about the exposure uh, to severe air pollution on the one hand, and on the other hand, we are talking about uh, dispersion of this black carbon that may, uh, that we have some evidence of, of deposition of this black carbon on the mountains, particularly in southern, in the southern part of the country, um, according to the measurements that have been performed, but also according to the simulations we have performed showing uh, the possibility of deposition of this black carbon accelerating the already melt, melting um, mountains along the Andes. So it's, it's both the dual, the dual effect of black carbon in terms of air quality and in terms of climate. And, and maybe, can I just press you a bit further, just how impactful on human health is black carbon? Are there estimates of numbers of, of you know, lives lost or years mm. of healthy lives lost due to this kind of pollution? Yeah, well, it's 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 is a part of a PM 2.5 fraction, which is the smaller part of particles that are fully inhalable that go down to your alveoli. Uh, so uh, in di direct impacts, yes, there are there are uh, estimates at the global scale um, and there are estimates on the local state based on PM 2.5 um, and uh, it's in Chile is roughly between depending on how you calculate or the exposure if you consider all the population subject or just a fraction of 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 the population you consider up from from 5000 people that die every year because of particles up mm. to uh, the double uh, up to 10000 so it's a significant mm. issue and is a reflection of what we call uh, energy poverty uh, in 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 the country. Mm. People don't have Thank access you. to better energy. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Marcelo. I'm going to move to you now. I'm curious to have you, you know, explain how Chile intends to achieve its enhanced NDC. Chile's NDC, like many countries, is substantially more ambitious than the climate change commitments that were made uh, when the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015. Uh, what do you think contributed to this shift and what needs to be done in Chile to achieve this increased ambition? Yeah, thank you. Um, as, um, as you correctly state, um, it is more ambitious, and this uh, goes to show that you need to build on new, uh, with with the new uh, administrations. You cannot, uh, you know, falter and 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 step back in your commitments, but you need to always take steps forward. So, um, the, one of the, just going back to the the air pollution uh, issue, though, just wanted to mention that um, when you know, at the same time, we also have a whole bunch of pollution attainment programs uh, that are in line, and we have integrated them. And that's why black carbon was mentioned for the first time in the 2015 NDC. We understood that we needed to produce both and integrate these policies. And we have carbon taxes and pollution taxes that both integrate local and air pollution, which have uh, with multiple uh, pollution attainment programs allowed reducing around 500,000 uh, cases of, of, um, of uh, emergency room visits. So it, it, there is a clear link between pollution being reduced and better health outcomes. But the, this integration, this vision that we have to uh, fight pollution is something that has gone on and we have a full support from different uh, act actors. The energy sector understands that they are part of the solution and they can help us clean the air with electromobility and clean heating. The industrial sector understands that they're, that you know they have access to cheaper energy as these things are uh, progressing. So if you look at our 2015 uh, commitment and 2020 commitment, we built the 2015 commitment with, um, with studies that we are projecting for 2030 uh, for renewable energy that have already been met today or surpassed. We projected, you know, uh, I remember quite clearly, uh, solar energy costing $80 per megawatt hour uh, by 2030. And you know, energy auctions have closed at 15 uh, in 2015. So it, it, when we were building this commitment in 2015, we knew that there's a promise of clean technologies to come in, 
and now we benefit and see this directly. An electric bus in Santiago uh, costs 70% less to maintain and operate, and therefore in a five-year period is cheaper to run than a diesel bus, and therefore there it's a no-brainer. You know, uh, climate change or no climate change is just better, more efficient for the economy. And ultimately, having the study that shows that there will be more increased uh, growth, uh, you know, uh, as we as we integrate the, the as we carry out a net zero uh, policy, goes to show that the, the dilemma that we used to have whether to uh, to prioritize growth or to uh, phase out emissions is is a false dilemma. And mm -hmm. that's why, for example, we have also committed as a country to phase out all coal-fired power plants by 2040 and probably by 2030. Uh, thank you. Uh, Graham, I'd like to turn to you now. Uh, what role does the Inter-American Development Bank play in support of national efforts to combine climate, health, and development goals? And how can the bank help Chile meet its enhanced NDC? Okay, well, thanks for the opportunity to, to chat with everyone. Um, I actually wanted to start off by emphasizing how big of an impact this pandemic has been on Latin America and the Caribbean. I mean, almost, and if not all countries have been massively impacted, massively affected, and it's unprecedented the level of impact, both in employment impacts, but also in terms of long-term impacts for economies. Uh, we're seeing all sorts of things that we've never seen before, people leaving cities, uh, Lima is basically being depopulated. Um, there's, there's, one can't underestimate how big of a change this has been. And if you look forward, uh, what we need to be able to be to doing is to looking beyond actually just a green recovery, because many of these impacts have fallen on vulnerable communities, on the underserved communities, on basically informal laborers, et cetera, et cetera. So, our future needs to be about sustainable recovery. So beyond, it needs to be inclusive, it needs to be green as we move forward. Um, and in fact, the, the the pandemic has actually exacerbated many of the existing inequalities, which have been problems throughout Latin America uh, for many, many years. Um, the, the key though to how we can support, how the IDB can actually support the movement forward is through this concept of sustainable recovery, which includes basically enhancing social resilience, supporting health systems, looking at cash transfer mechanisms that can actually be directed towards those gr groups that are most vulnerable or most impacted, uh, making sure that housing is built back green, as it were. Um, we also need to regenerate economic growth. That is beginning to be discussed right now. It's probably going to be much more the agenda for within a year or two years. But this is going to be through, uh, as Marcelo was saying, through renewable energy, which is now cheaper than any other option. I mean, it, it, it is a no-brainer, to be completely honest, that we need to be investing in that. We also need to be investing in electromobility, which ties back to the questions of pollution and, and contamination in cities. Uh, water and sanitation is going to be critical as we move forward. And one, one element has come to the fore a lot during the pandemic, which is digital access, which is also going to be key. And all of those investments can be and should be climate ready, basically. They're all investments that will help move forward the climate agenda. Um, I also think that, however, one needs to change the systems within countries as well. So another area of help going beyond the, the basic planning and policy changes that have to be put in place, the idea that you actually need to support long-term strategies, and I will emphasize that a lot <laughs> during this, this talk, mm -hmm. that, that, that you must take a long-term view. You can't do this over five years. You have to think out to 2050, which is exactly what Chile is doing, and it's an area we have supported Chile in. Um, and that needs to guide the NDCs, but those NDCs cannot sit in the nationally determined contributions, cannot sit in the ministries of environment or in the climate divisions of, of governments. They have to be in the ministries of finance. And Chile has been a very strong leader in this conceptually. It's got to be driven from the ministries of finance. And, and I repeat Marcelo's words, it has to go through all sectors. And the only way you can do that is through the ministries of finance and ministries of planning. So that's a big change that needs to happen. Uh, it, it, the agenda needs to shift where it's situated into the ministries of finance and move that forward. The last big change that I think Chile is also leading in is this question of how do you finance this? Most countries are going to be completely cash-strapped. Fiscally, they don't have the funds to be able to move forward. 
but there are ways of doing that. Marcelo mentioned some of them. Some is to basically increase your income through green taxation or green systems that actually can reduce pollution, but also can bring in more revenue. Others are to remove fossil fuel subsidies obviously carefully and with consideration of just transitions, but you can actually increase your revenues as a, a, a as the public sector in that sense. But you can also do things like create mechanisms that allow private sector investment, ensuring sustainability in those. For, for example, PPP arrangements, ESG investment taxonomies, and Chile, again, Chile is the lead in this, the concept of thematic sustainability bonds, sovereign bonds that can generate vast sums of money to drive this agenda forward. I'll, I'll hold Thank there. You and uh, wait for another question. Well, 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 thank you. Thank you, Graham. I'll, I'll turn to Chris now, uh, but I, I'll turn to Chris by emphasizing something that, that Graham said, that we need more than just a green recovery. Uh, and Chris, I, I'm I'm uh, grateful to bring you into the conversation because you, you have a, a global outlook on these kinds of questions. Uh, so when you're looking and when you work in other countries, what efforts do you see being undertaken in those countries to secure health benefits as part of broader climate change efforts, more than just that green recovery, as Graham said. Uh, thanks very much, Mark. So I think the thing that um, that we see when we're looking more broadly is that globally, I think there's a good understanding of what the magnitude of the benefit could be from taking this integrated action on air pollution and climate change together. There was a study that was done by the European Commission Joint Research Center in 2018 that estimated that by achieving, by countries increasing their climate change ambition to meet the two degree target, never mind extending that to stay within 1.5 degrees, the automatic the, or the, the simultaneous reduction in air pollution that is associated with achieving that target would be enough to avoid 1 million premature deaths per year globally by 2050. So taking that long view, that is the opportunity that we have globally in order to protect health from taking action on, on climate change. What we see with, with Chile and, and other countries is then trying to localize that to say, well, how does that, how can that be achieved in the particular national context in which um, uh, we're working? So Laura talked about the issues of black carbon and, and the use of um, biomass for, for heating in Chilean homes. In other countries where, where um, they are thinking about this integrated air pollution and climate change and health agenda, the, the solutions and the actions that need to be taken might be very different. To give some examples, in, in Bangladesh, a very large fraction of the black carbon emissions come from the parboiling of rice, where the, the, um, the rice residue is burned in order to, to, cook, the, to cook the rice. In Mexico, which also set a target in its 2015 NDC to reduce black carbon, about 23% of their black carbon emissions, according to their, um, their accounting, come from the use of, um, of biomass in the sugar milling process. So we have very particular national contexts that, that give you the, the solutions to achieving a, a level of climate change ambition that also achieves local benefits in um, in, in, in the in the in the countries to to get that global level of of, of health benefits and the the other um, point I just wanted to make is to to turn around the question slightly and and emphasize how including human health benefits can help to increase climate change ambition I think we see a, a, a clear example of that in the United States with the Green New Deal in the text of the Green New Deal you have um, not just a commitment or a, or, a, or a statement to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but everywhere, uh, but it's also stated to reduce pollution and greenhouse gas emissions and to, to mitigate the adverse health impacts that come from, um, from climate change and other environmental problems. So I think that you, you can have it both ways in terms of achieving health benefits from climate change, but increasing climate ambition by emphasizing the health impacts. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chris. I, I want to spend a few minutes kind of drilling down on the specific impact of the pandemic on debates around 
air pollution and climate change and human health? Uh, you know, is the pandemic delaying, accelerating, or having really any meaningful impact on debates around climate change and air pollution? Uh, I know Graham uh, got into this a, a little bit earlier, but I wanted to take a few moments and discuss this issue uh, in a little more specificity. Uh, so, Laura, I wanted to start with you. You know. It, is the fact that COVID-19 you know, is a respiratory disease, is that having any impact at all on domestic, political, or policy debates in Chile regarding black carbon? Less than I would like to. Um, in fact, we have shown data uh, at the center um, uh, that the incidence of, of, of the COVID uh, has been increased by the um, uh, chronic exposure to PM 2.5 is is a result that it's found elsewhere in the world. Uh, there are other studies showing up the same top type of of result. Nevertheless, um, people tend to put things in different boxes, and and and, and the COVID per se is, is thought as a as a, as a respiratory thing. The air quality is something else. And, and, and that has to do with the structure of the state in a manner because uh, these ministries are sectorial. Um, and, and, and you need actually to, to face these things in a more complex and in integrative manner in order to, to, to really uh, face those. The other issue that is, is, is really um, impressing is, is the lack of understanding of, of the effects of ventilation, of, of pure ventilation issues uh, that appear to be from another world. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's seldom you listen to people, uh, not everybody, of course, but some of the authorities talking about health issues and, and the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, it's like ventilation is not in their world, in their imagination, and, and that's something that has to change. We have, in fact, invited distinguished professors from from the north, uh, but that speak Spanish nevertheless, um, for for telling about that. And, and we haven't been particularly successful in uh, reaching out with that um, message, which is so basic, you know. Um, so all in all, I would say there is uh, still, we need to work more towards more integrated views of the issues we are facing in these times. Uh, thank you. Uh, Marcelo, uh, I'm going to shift to you now. Um, also, on, on the question of, of the pandemic, what impact may the economic fallout from COVID-19 have on Chile's ability to stay on target to meet that enhanced NDC that we discussed earlier? As, as we have a consensus that we need to, um, to net zero, this means that, you know, as as we face this pandemic, we really see that meeting the NDC is part of our um, priorities. So uh, as we started with the pandemic, a group of um, uh, scientists and economists and former uh, ministers started to call on a green recovery, which I think did have an influence in the fact that around 30% uh, of the investment package of the um, the, the stimulus package will go to NDC related activities. So that's really interesting because, uh, you know, that goes to show that uh, NDC is a policy paper that you could use to prioritize your actions. Now, whether this will be um, fully aligned to Paris Agreement, how much of that will really be recognized by international uh, taxonomies on whether this is a climate related investment, it, it, it uh, needs to be shown. but. I do think that there is a consensus that this needs to be done because this will uh, help invest in, in irrigation projects uh, for better adaptation, um, reservoirs, investment in, in infrastructure uh, to have better water availability. Uh, there will be more investments on renewable energy, on clean transportation, which are all things that we think are important. Um, and the, 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 the reason being, I think we need to start to integrate the health benefits and the air pollution benefits and, and the climate benefits is ultimately that, you know, we need to do these things regardless and we have multiple reasons to do the same things that we wouldn't have done otherwise. So when I, when I was a minister, we had looked at our benefit to cost ratio for the NDC and it was two to one. 
and our air pollution benefit to cost ratio was uh, six to one. And I'm really glad that the power sector has done an integrated assessment, which is seeing actually that today's NDC with health benefits integrated, the, the, the benefits rise fivefold. So if we save as an economy $20 per ton of CO2 that we mitigate, this goes up to $100 when we incorporate the health benefits. So this allows us to go into this next winter understanding that investing in a green recovery with wood burning overhauls and home insulation projects, this will contribute to both our climate and our direct health benefits. Because as Laura was saying, there is an inequality issue that we need to address. In Santiago, the people that have the highest income pollute three times more than the burning stoves at a three times higher rate. They have um, the, the lower income communities breathe three times worse air mm. and they have three times higher death rates in, in due to COVID. So there is a moral reason why we also need to continue to do this because those who have been hit the most are the lowest income communities in Chile and in Santiago. Uh, May I? Thank you. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, please. Go May ahead. I add something? Uh, another issue beyond um, changing apparatus for uh, burning wood or insulating housing, which is absolutely crucial and that's been started since a few years back, there is still a need of making or accepting the, the cultural and, and the cultural barriers that exist to adopt new technologies and new energy in particularly in the southern part of Chile, uh, where there is a long term use of, of wood burning and has historical reasons. And there is also a need is a, is a very important uh, part of the local economy. So if you we don't bring in some economical changes and inequity uh, policies or, or, or policies intended to face inequity, then uh, we will fall short if it's just a matter of changing, uh, uh, slowly changing uh, apparatus and housing, because that is already considered, but is 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 in a way too slow compared to um, the intensity of the problem. Uh, that's actually a, a nice transition to my question for Graham, uh, which is about the effects that the pandemic has had on the kinds of support you are seeing requested from governments. Uh, you know, is this question of inequity um, primary among governments in the region as they're requesting support for you? Are policies and uh, support requests designed in any meaningful way to address inequity? And you know, has the Inter-American Development Bank even seen an increase or decrease perhaps in requests coming from governments since the uh, pandemic hit? Yeah, so we've had a pretty substantial shift in the way we finance and what we're financing over 2020. And we kind of expect that shift to continue into 2021. Uh, the main focus of the investments have obviously been in health systems and maintaining and repairing and, and strengthening health systems. Again, really quite focused on the vulnerable and the most vulnerable. The second area has been on jobs, uh, trying to maintain or keep jobs as it were. Uh, that will probably shift into how do you generate jobs in the future, but at the moment it's been really a holding pattern on how do you keep jobs. Liquidity has been a huge issue, particularly for small enterprises, and so that's been another major area of investment. Um, and the last area is, is, is support to the governments and how do they manage this fiscally? How do you create, ensure fiscal stability during the crisis? So in essence, a, a substantial proportion of our resources have gone to loans to in that direction. And in fact, we've also shifted a lot of our technical cooperation support to actually look at how we can help countries more effectively. Um, part of this is obviously looking at the impacts on informal labor, uh, the impacts on neighborhoods that are affected and, and are underserved, etc. So um, going forward, we see this continuing. Uh, we're looking at mechanisms. I, I mentioned cash transfers for the most vulnerable that could be targeted towards individuals to support them. 
uh, increasing support to healthcare and making sure that you've got strong resilience in healthcare systems. And I suspect that we're going to be uh, supporting vaccines as well uh, during 2021, to be honest. So yes, there's been a huge shift and that reality is that it, that affects the amount of climate finance. There's not much you can interwine into the climate unless you start putting conditionality on things, which some countries mm. have tried to do, but it's, it's a high risk uh, strategy. But we're looking at that. We're discussing that right now. But at the same time as we've done that, we've also moved forward, continue to move forward with our agenda. So I, I, we published, uh, Marcelo, I think, mentioned this publication with ILO on jobs and decarbonization. The reality is if you decarbonize, you get more jobs and you can look at the quality of those jobs as well. I mean, it's, it, it, this is not, a, it, it's actually a positive agenda, it's the decarbonization. Uh, if you throw on top of that, the fact that renewable energies now are cheaper than the traditional fossil fuels, Again, it's a no-brainer. That's the direction you need to go in. What you need to deal with are some of the, the the sort of the the winners and losers questions. So there, in there comes the whole question of the just transition, which is absolutely critical. And in that sense, I think it's worth drawing attention to the work we just published. The the president of Costa Rica just launched the publication where we're looking at the costs and benefits of decarbonization in Costa Rica, which demonstrate again that there are 41 billion dollars worth of benefits that come from decarbonizing. This is not, no longer is this a discussion about economics. The economics on this are positive. The economics on this are positive. The jobs questions are positive. And there's a lot of analysis by people like Nick Stern that have demonstrated that actually the most effective policies for delivering jobs and economic regrowth are in fact climate policies. They're climate related policies. Uh, how are we actually gonna be working on this? Uh, I think over the, well, already one of the things we're seeing is demand for policy loans. So these are loans that help governments with fiscal space, uh, but those loans can be connected to policy changes that can be mm. crucial for the future. Uh, great example of that is Costa Rica, again, uh, where we gave them a substantive policy loan, but it was linked to decarbonization. But another example is Barbados, where we're supporting through another policy loan, their work on what's called the roof to reef resilience system. So you can do this, you can move mm. forward positively. We're also seeing substantial demand. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure, I, I should say, I'll make sure to post the link to the Costa Rica report Absolutely. Uh, you referenced. But uh, your response to that question ties in nicely and leads nicely to uh, my question for, for Chris, which is to provide more of a global context for the kind of answers that Graham was was just describing in terms of you know policies that are designed by governments to take on climate change and how the pandemic has sort of shifted those priorities over the years. So you know, when it comes to designing policies to take on climate change, how have you seen countries you know shift in the face of of the pandemic over the course of of this last year? Yeah, I don't think I can beat Graham's answer, which I thought was fantastic. So maybe the the um, the only thing that I would um, add to it in answering that question is that obviously in the majority of countries where we're working, national budgets have been hugely constrained, which has limited the ability for them to fund climate action directly. So the sort of um, um, uh, initiatives and 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 um, activities that that Graham was explaining become even more important. The, 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 the key point that I wanted to react to is that as well as the, the sort of economic benefits that Marcelo and that Graham were talking about, there uh, uh, is to link it back to the health benefits and, and taking this integrated view and, and looking at the cultural barriers that, uh, that Laura was talking about is just to, to really emphasize that there's a much broader range of health benefits that could be achieved from more integrated climate change and and health action so we have the air pollution health benefits which have been very well studied and that link between air pollution and climate changes is really clear but we have other sectors where there is a huge opportunity to take climate action in a way that will improve the health of of, of populations in countries so the agricultural sector is a really key example of this the the Lancet Commission on Healthy Diets, which reported last year, highlighted how if we can switch over to diets that um, that contain more fruit and more vegetables and decrease unhealthy um, um, foods like red meat and sugar, 
there's a huge opportunity to reduce greenhouse gases, to reduce the land that we need to produce the food that we need to to eat and to have that integrated health benefits. But of course, you 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 do run into those cultural barriers that Laura was was highlighting um, um, for other sectors in in Chile. Um, another key um, a sort of sector where we can achieve these integrated climate and health benefits is in water and sanitation. If we can set up, um, you know, uh, clean sanitation systems to reduce the incidence of diarrheal diseases and others, we can do that in a way that also minimizes the methane emissions, the the the, the greenhouse gases that you get from from um, from domestic wastewater as well. So there's a much broader opportunity here for climate and health actions beyond air pollution. Uh, so I wanted to remind and encourage people to submit uh, questions if you have them for the audience. And in a moment, uh, we'll be taking some questions. Uh, but I, I wanted to stay with you, Chris, and spend a few moments uh, sort of asking the question of whether or not Chile's uh, experience is transferable. You know, we are speaking uh, ahead of the Climate Ambition Summit in which countries are bringing their enhanced NDCs to the table. Chile is a co-host of this event. So uh, I want to ask a few questions to each of you about whether or not there are transferable lessons from Chile's experience that might benefit other countries. Uh, so uh, Chris, I, I, I will stay with you on that question. Uh, in what ways might Chile's enhanced NDC serve as an example for other countries and you know more to the point what lessons might other countries draw from chile's experience um i i think maybe the most important thing um in terms of the lesson lessons from chile's ndc is that it's not just about the ambition it's not just about the target and the, the level of um climate change mitigation that is committed to there it's what's behind that target and whether it's based on robust science and whether it, there has been thought that has gone into how that has been achieved and in in chile's ndc there is a clear set of actions that can be taken to achieve that target there's there's there is um you know um a clear set of policies and measures that can be be taken there uh, the second thing that I think is really impressive is that it's costed. You know, Marcelo was outlining the costs and benefits of, of climate action in Chile. And I think in relation to black carbon, many of the actions that are included in Chile's NDC to reduce black carbon, for example, um, minimum energy performance standards for off-road machinery are negative costs. You, you get back more than you, more, more than you put in. The third thing that I, I mentioned um, previously is that it's adapted to national circumstances. You have this, um, this um, you know, commitment to reduce black carbon from the major sources of black carbon in Chile. And I think there's a, a large opportunity for other countries there to make sure that the analytical, um, you know, scientific assessment is done in a way to adapt integrated air pollution, health, climate change actions to their particular circumstances, to their sources. Thank and you. then the final thing that I just want to highlight is, is what Marcelo said um, right in his first answer is that this NDC is based on long-term planning. It builds on what was done previously. And I think that's important because you, you build up that scientific basis. I think it's also important in terms of tracking progress and monitoring in the future. There is a system there to make sure that these commitments are achieved and to track progress on that. Uh, uh, thank you. And Laura, I'm going to turn to you now. You know, including black carbon in the NDC is a good example of how individual health outcomes may benefit from an ambitious climate change agenda. What other opportunities exist in Chile and perhaps in other countries in terms of mitigating air pollution in ways that could make a big difference in both individual health and also accelerate action on climate change? Well, um, that's a good question. I, I, I could, uh, of course, air quality is, is still an issue over a large part of the country uh, with different flavors. Uh, in, in the southern part uh, of the continent, you, uh, of the continental Chile, you see a lot of wood burning. In central Chile, you see a mixture of, of um, uh, mobile emissions, uh, industrial and wood burning as well. And in the northern, you see more of industrial. So in, a, in each of these regions, you, you, you see um, 
impacts that can lead to changes in, in climate drivers and shortly climate forces, I would say. Now, um, I think what is needed now is to go from this national view into a more regional and local perspective in order to really account for the improvement and actually connecting also uh, the monitoring, not only in terms of M MRV, in terms of, uh, how is it, uh, monitoring, um, I don't remember the, 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 the thing, but it's this monitoring that is ch checklists and go into mm. actual monitoring and actual measurements in order to see locally the co-benefits of reducing one or the other. Uh, going into um, more of a, the carbon dioxide um, reduction and, and monitoring will be very key. Uh, and, and I will take the opportunity to add something to Chris. I think one of the good things that happened with this uh, uh, latest N uh, NDC is that the participation of the um, of the of the um, scientific community was huge, and 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 that uh, to some extent might be serendipity, but it's also the opportunity of the COP to some extent force the idea of collaborating with the scientific community, which uh, provides a lot of work for uh, establishing this NDC, reviewing it and, 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 and criticize it at the point uh, to, 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 to actually improve it. And that was uh, essentially uh, uh, something extremely important. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm going to move to Marcelo now. You know, the politics of uh, Chile's NDC is interesting to me as an American, where climate change is a very polarized issue. You know, earlier in the conversation, uh, Chris mentioned the Green New Deal, which is this you know, political boogeyman now in, in the United States. Uh, in Chile, there seems to be, you know, more bipartisan support for climate change action. You know, you have a right wing government, uh, and, you know, who has put forth a reasonable N NDC or at least an enhanced NDC. Uh, I mean, do you agree with that assessment, first of all? And do you have any advice on how to build a broad based political coalition in support of enhanced NDCs? Yeah, one of the biggest uh, differences with the U.S. is that we have no fossil fuel interests and that makes everything uh, easier. And obviously, um, we are worried, though, that the degradation of political discourse uh, with big news and et cetera, you know, um, uh, the fact that you, climate change was made political was only a, a preamble of having wearing a mask being a political issue also. So, you know, we don't know where that ends and we should continue uh, to base our decisions on science. So I would say one of the important things that happened uh, from 2015 and 2020 is that science was the guider. So either your commitment was aligned to the Paris Agreement or it wasn't. There was no two visions and you needed to just show that you were able to meet that. Whereas our previous approach was more bottom up. What happens if we had 10% you know, electric cars? What would happen if we had 20% renewable energy? And I think that approach was great to build up the capacity, but wasn't really getting us where we needed to. I think that was a big difference. But also the other things that have allowed us to have great support is the evidence. We have $14 billion in renewable energy investments last decade. And we are starting this decade with 10 billion more. And so this is what's for dinner. This is what growth is about. This is what jo creates jobs in Chile today. And so this opened up this vision of this new climate economy. The vision that Nick Stern put out is very well designed within our vision today because more minerals will be demanded as the clean technologies are deployed. And these need to be cleaner. And the way to make it clean is with green hydrogen. And the green hydrogen agenda could replace the mining agenda in its growth potential. So we have launched a green hydrogen strategy last month. I was part of the, the committee and that uh, actually has a target of $33 billion in sales a year, which is equivalent to the mining GDP. So this new climate economy could help us shift from an extractive based economy that uh, extracts around 2.5 kilograms of stuff per dollar that we generate, which is five times higher than the OECD average, to a renewable-based economy that will be infinite, will not run out, will not pollute the air. So that's why I think we have that consensus, but that consensus only holds as we stay true to the science 
and to the evidence. Uh, thank you. And and Graham, I will turn to you now to close out this uh, round of questioning. Uh, first, I mean, do you agree that Chile is getting more bang for its buck by combining air pollution mitigation with its climate plan? And I, I sort of cut you off earlier when you were uh, discussing how you might assess uh, projects that have more than a single bottom line that take on job growth plus climate change or health impacts plus climate change. I mean, to what extent do you tend to favor those kinds of projects over projects with, say, single bottom lines that are, as you said earlier, uh, projects that are just focused at green recovery? Okay, I, I wanted to start off by, by saying that there are several model countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, they're models for different reasons, uh, but they're all moving forward the agenda in, in one way or another. And, uh, we often have Costa Rica, Chile, Colombia, but Uruguay, Barbados, Bahamas, all of them are doing different things that actually move the agenda forward. And the reality of this kind of agenda is that you can you can sit here and you can write out what should happen, but actually the the but the, the sort of the, the rubber hits the road in the country. And, and that's where you have to deal with the political economy. That's where you have to deal with the, the complexities of moving forward the agenda. In terms of how do you integrate? It is still a very complicated process. And how do you think in an integrated way? We are just not designed, our governments are not designed, our, uh, our teaching is not designed to think integrated, to be honest. But I do think that there are some concepts and, and uh, Marcelo mentioned the new climate economy, but one of the basis of that whole concept is sustainable infrastructure. And I, I do wanna emphasize the value of that conceptually, but also in terms of being able to deliver integrated responses. Uh, because if you take the concept of sustainable infrastructure, and we've written quite extensively about that as well, you're looking at economic, financial, environmental, social, and institutional issues in delivering projects. You can apply it to infrastructure, or you can apply it to any kind of, of, of sectoral project. And there are some countries that are moving forward with that agenda. Uh, we, we mentioned earlier on this question of taxonomies. Chile's own bond is actually designed around delivering uh, the sovereign bond to deliver sustainable infrastructure results. Mexico is moving forward with agendas of being able to present to the private sector, how sustainable is my infrastructure project? Brazil is trying to think about the same thing. And they're all thinking about this because one of the things the pandemic has also shown us is that actually integrated approaches are more effective and more sustainable and give better returns, which is actually one of the keys. So ESG projects actually give you better returns and have done better over the pandemic than any other form of investing. Um, I do think that, that that's a, an important step forward. I also want to come back to one of the points and I want to emphasize this. This thinking over the long term is another key model part. You have to think over the long term. You can't go, what's going to happen over the next five years? I'm sorry. The next 20 to 30 years are going to be years of substantial change. We know we're entering into transformations. And uh, there's this classic model of how long it took in New York City to change from horses to cars. 14 years. It took hardly any time at all. But what was all of the technological change that occurred at the same time? So you need to think long-term, but you actually have to plan long-term, and that's really hard unless you get really bright minds thinking about it. So one of the things we've been supporting Chile with, as well as Peru, Colombia, Costa Rica, uh, and other countries is with how do you do that? How do you think? How do you create, get the universities, the academia to actually support the governments with that very difficult thinking about what's going to happen in the future? If you don't do that, you're going to fail. You're going to basically invest in products today that are going to last 40 years. And in 40 years, they're going to be far more expensive in delivering their electricity than the, the new things that are coming in five years. It's a very hard thing to do. And I think there's lots of lessons learned from Spain about what you should do, what you should not do. But I also wanted to draw attention. Last week, there was a there was an article which which basically pointed out that Iberdola is one of the largest companies in the world today. And why did they get that? Because they actually took those risks earlier on and they're now huge. They're bigger than the fossil fuel companies. So anyway, I just want to emphasize one last thing very quickly. 
I do think that the key, Chile has also shown super leadership on the coalition of finance ministers. This, this is a key way forward. If we don't drive this agenda through the ministries of finance, and not just the climate agenda, the sustainability agenda, biodiversity is the same thing. You cannot drive it where you can drive it from the ministries of environment, but it's so much more powerful and effective if you drive it through ministries of finance and ministries of planning. Uh, so I think that that agenda is also critical. Here is a final question. You each have one minute to answer this question for a reason. Let me set this up. Um, you know, the Climate Ambition Summit is, is being held virtually. Uh, imagine uh, that you uh, get the credentials and you Zoom bomb this summit and you have one minute to speak your piece before the admin, before Antonio Guterres hits the uh, mute button on you. Uh, what one piece of advice would you give to the world leaders on the Zoom call. And Chris, I'll start with you. Uh, you have one minute before you're muted. What is your one piece of advice for the Climate Ambition Summit? I, I would reiterate what I said earlier about the scale of the um, benefits that can be achieved from integrating climate change and health. And I, I think the research that the European Commission Joint Research Centre did is, is fantastic. By 2050, if we increase our ambition to meet to limit temperatures to two degrees the air pollution reductions that are achieved simultaneously will avoid one million premature deaths per year by um 2050 so i would reiterate that to to the leaders that there's a huge opportunity there if thank they grasp it uh thank you uh laura uh, to you what one piece of advice would you confer on the climate ambition summit in a minute listen to the people uh, I think um, deepening democracy is crucial in this battle. Uh, it's not a matter of, it's not only a matter of, of brilliant, intelligent people. Uh, we haven't shown to be particularly intelligent up to now. I mean, we are driving a world into a limit that is not sustainable. So I think it's key to listen to the science, listen to the younger people and, and, and listen to the people, what they are saying, what they are claiming, why they are complaining about inequity. Um, uh, so I would ask for that. And Graham, uh, over to you, uh, your one piece of advice for the Climate Ambition Summit in a minute. Okay, in a minute and, and trying to keep it to the messaging we've already had, need to commit to net zero by 2050. All countries need to design their indices in the context of net zero 2050. And I think things like the Global Coalition for Carbon Neutrality is a great step forward. Denmark's and the UK's announcements, great steps forward. Uh, I, I do have a second message. It also needs to be integrated cabinet, ministry of finance, ministry of planning led views. It cannot be in the ministries of environment alone or in the climate offices. And we know this is all technically and, and economically feasible. We know how to do it. We know we can do it. We've got examples of doing it. We just need to make sure we manage it in a just way and also manage the political economy of this. Uh, thank you. And and Marcelo, uh, to you uh, for some concluding thoughts. And in a minute, what advice would you give? Yes, um, I was just reminded of the mug that I gave Jim Kim as the president of the World Bank, which said, what if climate change isn't real and we're improving the quality of life for everyone for no good reason? You know, this is the, the story of this uh, 21st century. This is going to allow us to have more jobs. This will actually bring the jobs that we have lost. We've lost around you know, five million in the Latin American context, uh, and we'll lose even more if we don't fight climate change. So this is a reason why we could have cleaner transport that people really like more in this place of Chile. People uh, uh, evaluate uh, green, uh, the, the, the electric buses much better than conventional buses, uh, and cleaner heating is also uh, not a bad thing. So overall, I do think uh, you just need to acknowledge that we, when we do this, we will actually fight inequality and the most vulnerable people in the world. So let's do it for no good reason, except making them everything better. But as we do it, let's integrate it across agencies and through finance ministries, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the, the key key lessons that, that we've, we've heard today. Uh, thank you all. Thank you all for your time. Thank you all for answering questions. Uh, and this was a fantastic conversation. I, I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, over to you, Andrea, for some concluding remarks. 
Thank you all for joining on behalf of Stockholm Environment Institute. Uh, thank you uh, to the audience uh, that kept a bit mum, um, but uh, hopefully got all the answers to questions they never knew they wanted to ask. And uh, just a short appeal to do follow us on uh, social media at SEI Climate is our Twitter account. Um, check out our website at SEI.org. Uh, follow the Global Dispatches podcast, of course, um, and we'll update you when the podcast is online. Um, right, I would say we're we're two minutes short of, of 1600 CET. Um, just thank you from me. All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to SEI for inviting me to moderate this event and turn it into a special episode of the podcast. That was a lot of fun and interesting as always. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.